Are you familiar with the Stanford marshmallow test that occurred back in the 1970s, a famous experiment where a four or five-year-old child was brought into a room and then the researcher placed a marshmallow on a table in front of the child and said, I'm going to be leaving the room for a little while. If you can wait until I come back, Before you eat the marshmallow, I will give you a second marshmallow as a reward. But but if you eat the marshmallow while I'm gone, you just get one marshmallow. That's the deal. And so the researcher would leave the room for 15 minutes, and the kids, as they came into the room, were videotaped, so we know their response. In some cases, as soon as the researcher left the room, the kid got up from their chair, walked over the table, grabbed the marshmallow, popped it in its mouth, and gobbled it down. Other kids, as we see on the video, squirmed, bounced up and down. Some even held themselves (laughs) to restrain themselves. Some eventually gave in, and some waited the entire 15 minutes and were given the second marshmallow as a reward. Now, this study, as you may know, uh, was also followed up with another study tracking these kids years later. And the study showed that the children who were willing to wait for the second marshmallow tended to have higher test scores when it came to standardized examinations, lower incidence of drug abuse, and better social skills in general. The follow-up then was critiqued by a further study, which showed that the experiment wasn't just about willpower by any means, but the children were largely influenced by their economic and social backgrounds, and whether their families valued delayed gratification or not. The reason I use this illustration is to demonstrate that even a child as young as four or five years of age have a sufficiently developed prefrontal cortex, meaning the decision-making part of their brain, that they can potentially say no to a marshmallow now in favor of a future reward of two marshmallows in a way that your dog and my dog cannot because they have a smaller prefrontal cortex relative to the size of their entire brain. I mean, no disrespect to our dog, Sasha, whom we love, our golden retriever, whom Bing knows. But she is very much in the moment. So if we place a piece of raw meat in front of her, she can't pause and think, better to save this for later. (laughs) She's on that meat. We're in a series right now on resilient faith. And today we're going to be looking at how Moses exhibited resilient faith in part because he was able to use his prefrontal cortex, the decision-making part of his brain, with God's help to say no to something that part of him really wanted to embrace in order to say yes to a future reward. In Hebrews 11, we see people who are featured in what is sometimes called the Hall of Faith chapter in the Bible. Moses is one of those people featured. And so we read in verses 24 to 27 these words. 
By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him, that is God, who is invisible. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would guide us through your word today and through the life of Moses and that through the work of your spirit in our hearts, we would see you, the God who is invisible to our physical eye and yet very real. And in seeing you, may you implant in us a, a passion to live faithfully by your grace, even as Moses did. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So before we unpack these verses, I want to set up the context and, and, and the background for Moses' experience here. At the end of the book of Genesis, we see that Jacob, whom Craig preached about powerfully last Sunday, and, and he explained how Jacob wrestled with God. At the end of the book of Genesis, we see how Jacob along with his family of 70, leave the land of Canaan where there has been a severe famine and where their lives are therefore at risk. And they head off to Egypt where there is grain. Through a miraculous turn of events, Jacob's second youngest son, Joseph, has been elevated to become prime minister of all of Egypt, second in command under Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so when Jacob's family arrives in Egypt, Joseph is able to get them grain and to literally save their lives. Pharaoh hears that Joseph's family is in the country and approaches them and says, why don't you move here and take safe haven here in Egypt? And they do. They eventually grow old. They die. 400 years pass. And the new Pharaoh doesn't know, has not heard of Joseph. He doesn't know about the promise that his predecessor, four centuries before, the Pharaoh then, had made to Joseph's family to protect them. All he knows is that the descendants of Jacob known as the Israelites or the Hebrews, have become so numerous that the Pharaoh feels that they represent a threat to the empire. And so the Pharaoh commands all the Israelite midwives when they're helping a woman give birth. If they see that it's a boy, they have been commanded to kill the boy. Well, the Israelite midwives refuse to do this. They engage in civil disobedience. And so the Pharaoh commands all of his own people, the Egyptians, if they see a baby Israelite boy, to take the baby and toss it into the Nile River and drown it. Well, there's a woman named Jochebed. She's an Israelite. She gets pregnant. She gives birth to a boy. And according to the scriptures, she sees that this is no ordinary boy. 
We don't know exactly what the scriptures mean by that because most mothers feel that their baby is no ordinary baby. <laughs> but apparently this boy was exceptional in some distinct way. Jochebed wanted to preserve his life. And so she takes a papyrus basket, coats it with tar and pitch, waterproofs it, places the baby boy in the basket, places the basket in the Nile River, and the basket rests against some reeds. And then the daughter of Pharaoh, the princess of Egypt, comes out to the river to bathe. And she hears the voice of a baby's cry, walks over to that voice, looks inside the papyrus basket, and sees that it is an, an Israelite baby boy. The princess has compassion on this child and decides to save his life. Well, Miriam, the baby's older sister, is watching what's going on. She rushes over to the princess and makes an offer. She says, ah, if you'd like, I can get one of the Israelite mothers to nurse the baby for you. The princess probably knows exactly what's going on. She thinks, great idea. I can't ask an Egyptian to nurse an Israelite baby boy that could risk her life. So yes, yes, go, go, go get one of the Israelite mothers to, to nurse the baby and I will pay the Israelite woman for doing this. And so Miriam gets Moses' mother, amazingly, who will be paid to nurse her own child. And so Moses' mother, Jochebed, and his father, Amram, parent him and raise Moses during the most formative years of his life. They shape his character. Now, the Bible tells us that when Moses grew older, he was taken to the Egyptian court, to the palace, and given over to the princess, and she took him as her son. How old was Moses when this occurred? We don't know for certain, but biblical scholars tell us that it was at age 9 or 10 that a prince of Egypt would begin their training. And so probably at age 9 or 10, Moses enters into the Egyptian court, is given access to the best possible education of his day. He has as much sumptuous, delicious food as his stomach wants. He's living in luxury. He has privileged power later in his life from what we know of Egyptian sexual mores, he'll have access to women and sensual pleasure if he chooses that path. So all kinds of worldly advantages to being the son of the princess, to being considered the prince of Egypt. But we read in verse 24, remarkably, that by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter even though there were all kinds of advantages to being the son of Pharaoh's daughter, Moses refuses to be identified in this way. Now, I'm sure that Moses was truly grateful, deeply grateful to the princess for literally having saved his life, drawing him out of the Nile River. His name means, you know, to be drawn from the river. But as we mentioned before, Moses had been raised during the most formative years of his life by his biological mother, Jochebed, and by Amram. 
And because of that, Moses, from the time he was a very young boy, would have learned about the living God. Jacob would have said, you were born for a purpose. God's hand is upon your life. You must serve the living God all of your days. And, and, and this shaped who Moses became. And so as an adult, he didn't see himself primarily as a son of the princess. But he identified more as a son of Jochebed and Amram. He didn't see himself as an Egyptian, but as an Israelite. And at an even more fundamental level, Moses saw himself as a son of God, a beloved son of God. And knowing that God was with him and knowing that he was cherished by God made him into a person of resilient faith. Later in his life, God shows up to Moses in the form of a burning bush and calls Moses to a very daunting task to lead God's people, the Israelites, out of Egypt where they have been slaves for 400 years across the Nile River, across the Red Sea, through the desert, and into the Promised Land. And Moses does not want this assignment. He feels tremendously insecure, in part because he has a serious speech impediment. He's also really intimidated at the prospect of leading what's probably more than two million people, including children, across the desert toward Canaan. This is a big, big job. And so at first he says, I cannot do this. But God assures him that God is really with him, that God really loves him. And because Moses is formed in his identity as a beloved son of God through his interactions with God, whom he speaks to as a friend, according to the Bible. Moses has the courage, has the resilience to do something bold, something that seems impossible. He becomes this person of truly resilient faith. And if you know that your primary identity is not as the son or daughter of so-and-so, you may love and deeply respect your parents, but your primary identity is as a son or a daughter of God. You will become a person of resilient faith. You'll be willing to do things that you were never willing to do before because you know that God is with you. Mark, who was leading us in worship earlier, is from South Africa. You probably picked that up from his accent as he prayed. You can't usually tell when a person sings, right? Interestingly enough, Craig mentioned he's from South Africa. We were together for a meal last week and Mark was sharing about how he senses that while he has lived his entire life, almost his entire life in South Africa up until now, he feels that God is calling him, his wife and their three young children to relocate to Vancouver, Canada, to this vast land. He sold his house, his homes in South Africa, his businesses, and he is venturing out in this step of faith, he's taking a risk to coming to this un unknown, unknown place for him, largely unknown place. And if you believe that God is with you, and if you believe that his hand is upon you and you are cherished by him and that you are a daughter of God, a son of God, when you are called to something that requires courage, you will have the resilience to step out and make that move.
because you will become a person of resilient faith when you know that God is with you. We also read in verse 25 that he, Moses, chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. As mentioned earlier, Moses had all kinds of privileges as a prince of Egypt. All the delicious food he wanted, living in luxury. He could pursue any pleasure that his heart desired if he chose that path. And yet, amazingly, we read that he chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. This this statement seems very counterintuitive, countercultural, maybe even counterhuman, to be willing to be mistreated instead of enjoying the pleasures of sin. If we think that Moses has lost his mind or, is, or this path is completely crazy that he's, that he's taking, we feel that way because we have an assumption that suffering is to be avoided at all costs at all times, and that pain can never be part of a good life. The ancient Greeks had two words that described two different kinds of pursuit of happiness. One word was hedonia, and the other word was eudaimonia. When the ancient Greeks talked about hedonia, they were referring to the pursuit of happiness that comes from seeking pleasurable feelings. Pleasure through food, pleasure through sex, pleasure through entertainment, pleasure through a beautiful sunrise or sunset. Now let me be clear, pleasure is a good thing. God created pleasure. There are some sinful pleasures, but generally pleasure is a good thing. And we need some hedonia in our lives, some real pleasure to experience happiness. But the irony is, and this could be a totally different sermon, if we make it our primary goal in life to pursue pleasure, we'll be less happy. One path of pleasure is hedonia, seeking pleasurable experiences. The other path that the ancient Greeks talked about as a path of happiness was eudaimonia. And eudaimonia refers to the happiness that comes from living a good life, a life of virtue, a life of meaning and purpose. What differentiates hedonia from eudaimonia? The possible presence of suffering and shame. If you are pursuing a eudaimonic kind of happiness, you may not be using that word, obviously, but if you're pursuing this latter path to happiness, you understand at some level that you can experience challenge and adversity and still experience joyful fulfillment because your life has meaning and purpose. So for example, let's say you feel called to a certain course of study. That course of study may be demanding. It may be difficult. And yet, if you feel you're supposed to be pursuing this, it can also feel fulfilling. Or let's say you're called, you feel called to a certain kind of work. Most work is difficult. Most work requires a lot of us. But if you feel called to that work, that work can also bring you some satisfaction. 
Or let's say you feel called to a friendship, a relationship, a marriage, to raise children. All of these involve investment. All of these involve sacrifice. And yet, if you feel called to these, you also experience real joy in these relationships. And so it was for Moses. He didn't have the term eudaimonia. But as he was pursuing what he understood to be God's will for him to identify with the Israelites and to lead them out of Egypt. It was going to be difficult. It was hard. But he also experienced the joy of a life of meaning and fulfilling God's purpose. A man named Charlie, I've talked to some of you about him, was the chief financial officer of a major fast food chain that you're all familiar with. The chairman of the company that owned the fast food chain comes to Charlie and says, I want you to create a mathematical model that will project an exaggerated level of future earnings for our company so we can sell it off at a huge profit and make a lot of money as executives. Charlie had just become a follower of Jesus and prayed about this request. Didn't feel any peace. He felt God was calling him to say no to the request. He was nervous because he was the sole breadwinner in his family. When he said no to the chairman, the chairman immediately fired him, literally on the spot. And I remember having dinner with Charlie in his home. We were in front of plates of fish. He looked at the fish on our plates there at the family meal and said, Ken, God has always provided all that we needed. And he says, as I look back on that decision, it was the best business decision I've ever made in my life. I have no regrets. I've never felt so much peace. So it was a decision that was difficult that led to some relative hardship, but it was also a decision that was marked by joy. I know someone who has given up her future inheritance so that her sister, whose financial future is less certain than her own, will likely have a more secure financial future. The financial advisors have been just totally just incredulous. They've asked her, why would you do this? No one, we, we don't know of anyone who's ever done anything like this before. This is your right. And she feels that this would honor her late father, that it would please God, not that God is, quote, requiring it necessarily. And it also gives her joy to know that this act of giving something over to her sister may bless her sister. And so she feels joy in that. Uh, last night, for some reason, this, this uh, came to mind. Um, as I was just starting my work here at 10th Church, you know, way back in 96, uh, my sister, coincidentally, happened to be beginning her career as a professor at the University of California at Riverside. And she called me and she said, Ken, um, are you sure that you want to be a pastor? You, should, you really should get your PhD and come and join the faculty at the University of California. It'll be way less stressful. <laughs> she said, it's a pretty cushy cushy gig that I have. I teach one semester and then I basically get the summer and most of the next semester off. It is comfortable, comfortable, comfortable. No offense if you're a professor at the University of California. That might have been just my sister's perspective, okay? 
She had my best interest at heart, but she was saying, Ken, this life would be so much less stressful, so much more comfortable for you as a professor than what I imagine a pastor would have to go through. I appreciated her heart, but she didn't realize that the goal of my life is not to try to lower my stress as much as possible. It is ideally to follow the path that I feel God has called me to. And yes, as Craig knows, sometimes our work can be stressful, can be difficult. But when we believe that we are in the will of God, it's also marked by great joy and fulfillment and a sense of wonder. And most of you aren't called to be pastors in a formal sense, but if you feel called to your work, even though it may be difficult, there will be joyful fulfillment in it and you will find yourself more resilient. And then finally, insofar as this message is concerned, let's look at verse 26. He that is Moses disregarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because Moses was looking ahead to his reward. Very interesting verse saying that Moses regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as being of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking forward to his reward. The, one of the interesting parts of this verse is that Moses is referred to as taking into account Christ, but Moses lived 1,500 years before Christ. And so he probably didn't have a clear picture of God coming into the world as a human being in Christ. But he had a vision of God and he knew along with the other people featured in Hebrews 11 that people who belong to God are promised a future city with foundations whose architect and builder is God, a heavenly country, what's sometimes called the New Jerusalem in the Bible. And so that promise of a future reward would enable Moses to face suffering when called upon to do so, to experience a eudaimonic joy, and to express resilient perseverance in faith. James Martin has written a brilliant book called The Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything. I love that book, cite from it from time to time. He says that if you are facing a decision that's hard to make, it can be helpful to imagine yourself as having just died, as intense as that sounds, and then standing before God at the end of your life giving an account of the decision you've made. And so, he, so in some cases, it's, it's really obvious. You're contemplating the possibility of sinning. You imagine standing before God, giving an account. Hopefully, imagining being before God gives you clarity not to sin, not to make that choice. But some situations are more complex. Let's say you're offered a prestigious, high-paying job, but you know that if you take this job, you'll be miserable and you won't see much of your family because you'll be so busy and you won't be able to connect with your friends. And you imagine yourself at the end of your life before God saying, I took the job, I was miserable, I never really saw my family again. And you imagine how sad you would feel in that moment. But then you imagine not having taken the job and standing before God and saying, I didn't take the job, had a little less pay, but I was able to honor my most important relationships. And you imagine the joy you feel in that moment with God. Envisioning your future reward with God can make you a person of wisdom and resilient faith. Some of you may know the name Jim Elliott. 
When Jim Elliot was a young man in the 1950s, he and four of his friends felt that they were supposed to go to Ecuador to reach and to connect with and to share the love of God with a group of Alka Indians. Uh, they arranged for a plane to drop gifts over this community. They used a loudspeaker and, and using some very simple um, Alka language, communicated to, to these people, hey, we're coming to you uh, as friends. And after they felt they had made a connection and established some positive rapport, they crossed the river to meet these people face to face. And as you may know, they were all speared to death. Not long before Jim Elliot had written in his journal words that are now famous, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And she is no fool who gives what she can never keep to gain a prize she can never lose. And Moses was no fool when he gave up the fleeting pleasures of sin in Egypt to gain a God and a future prize he could never forfeit. And when we have a vision of a God who promises us a reward beyond our imaginings and forego the marshmallow, the first marshmallow. I'm not, I'm not saying anything's wrong with eating a marshmallow, by the way, or eating s'mores, but whatever that represents. And instead, choose the way of God. We can know joy in our lives now, but an even greater joy when we meet God face to face. A couple of weeks ago, as we looked at another passage from Hebrews 11, we also concluded with Hebrews 12. I want to do so again today, where the writer says, Jesus for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. What was the joy that Jesus anticipated as he faced the cross? Well, the joy was you. The joy was me. His knowing that through his sacrificial death on the cross, our sins could be washed away so that he could be with us in relationship. And when we focus on Jesus and follow his path and realize that we have a joy set before us in him and a deeper connection with him now and forever. We can endure whatever is set before us. We can become people of resilient faith and faithfulness. Let's pray together. Maybe this is something that you never or rarely do, but if I may, can I invite you just for a moment to imagine yourself at the end of your life, in the life to come, standing before your maker, your creator, and giving some account for your life. God is merciful and forgiving. He blots out our past sins. So don't imagine this as a fearful moment, but imagine what you would want to feel in that moment. Perhaps you would want to feel a sense that with God's help, you have lived a faithful life. And that with God's help, you have become more like Moses or more to the point, more like Jesus. And if that's your heart, pray, God, give me a resilient faith. Give me a faithful heart that I might do your will. 
that I might live out your purpose for my life. And as you pray that, and as you live that, with God's help, may you know his joy, his meaning, his purpose. And may you sense the smile of God upon you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.